Hello, and welcome to Surroundscapes, an audio and video podcast series featuring a diverse collection of interviews with thought leaders from around the world, addressing a general subject of the future of business. This content is curated by Blue Sound Professional and focuses on the role of the oral and visual senses in creating unique, delightful, and compelling experiences to stimulate business. This fourth series of Surroundscapes is focused on the future of music, and we're really delving into two aspects of that. Firstly, new ways of creating and presenting music, and secondly, how to properly monetize and value music in these changing times. So for this episode, I'd like to introduce Zoe Keating, who's talking to us from Vermont. Zoe's a wonderful cello player who creates this immensely evocative, resonant music that I've been a fan of for many years now. And um, and she's been very vocal on how musicians can or cannot create a living for themselves in today's time. And so I'm really looking forward to digging into that. Uh, so hi there, Zoe. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much for your time. So to start with, can we um, just talk about what it is you do um, and how you got to where you are now? Sure. So I'm known as a cellist with a computer. Um, I, I really love the sound of the cello. It's just such a I've always loved it since I started yes. playing when I was eight. Yeah. And, um, sound, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, it, it's very simple concept. I take the cello and I layer it and loop it and sample it to make, you know, musical pieces that where all the parts are played by cello. And um, so I've had the vision that I wanted to do that for a long time. And it just took me a while until I could actually start doing it. Um, and uh, I, you know, I studied music in college and what have you. And then um, I moved to San Francisco in my 20s and fell into the dot-com boom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, got a job in a software startup and, um, and uh, played the cello in rock bands in the evening. Um, and so I had, you know, I really wanted to be a musician, but of course I had student loans and you know didn't have any money and and the tech job paid really well so it was really you know it it wasn't until the crash (laughs) the the dot-com crash um that I really made the leap to full-time musician because my company evaporated um (laughs) and uh and at the time I had already been playing the cello as a session cellist, like playing Mm -hmm. for rock bands in kind of the grunge scene of San Francisco. Mm. Um, And uh, it took about a year to sort of develop my sound and just work on things and what have you. And I made a little EP that I was really excited about. And I thought, you know, this is, I like this a lot. I was really inspired by the, the kind of electronic dance music that was happening in my house because I lived Mm -hmm. in a warehouse, which was an art collective with other musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, and a bunch of sort of music techies. And one of my housemates worked for Cycling 74. Um, and uh, so Cycling 74 would have their events at our warehouse and there would be, you know, little looping pedals and devices. And I would test things and um, plug the cello into the gear that was lying around. We had two studios in the house. So, mm. um, and a huge space upstairs that could fit about 200 people. That was our living room slash kitchen slash performance space. Wow. And um, 
so that was a really fertile environment with people coming over and cross genre stuff of technology and music and jazz and classical and all kind of melting pot. So, um, so I made my little album, which was inspired by kind of these, these sounds, these electronic sounds. Mm -hmm. And then, um, but I really wanted to make them all on the cello without any effects, you know, just, just the effects that are naturally built into this beautiful instrument, you know, the bow and so little scratching sounds or ponticello or hitting the side of the instrument. And mm -hmm. the only effect I would use was splicing and looping. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and all EQ. And um, so I made this thing and I excitedly sent it off mm -hmm. to record labels. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the I ones, remember yeah. The ones that I knew that I'd kind of, you know, I'd, I've been a cellist on this album or that album. And um, I mean, I have to say to their credit, I, two people did reply. Mm. <laughs> which I guess is actually a pretty good response. Yeah, it's not too bad. <laughs> yeah. And they both told me that what I was doing had absolutely no commercial appeal. Um, one of them said, well, maybe if you were to add vocals, this would have a future, but um, you know, very, very interesting, very cute, you know, not really anything we're interested in. And so, um, so, you know, I thought, well, that's disappointing, but um, I'll just release it myself. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got where I am today. And so at the time, that was considered not really a viable career strategy, but it was the only option available to me. And I just did it. And I put my music on Apple iTunes when mm -hmm. it was, um, I think it was 2004, when they first right. opened up iTunes to people who were not on record labels. Mm -hmm. um, so I did that. And then one thing led to another. And um, pretty soon I was able to make a career and I joked, except it was not a joke that, you know, I bought a house in uh, 2007 mm. and that the house was, the mortgage was paid for by iTunes. And that was actually true. Mm. Mm. So it mm. was the, um, at the time I was getting, you know, every six weeks or so I'd get a payment from Apple that would show mm. up in my bank account. And my husband and I used that to show the bank that I was getting money on a regular basis from Apple and they didn't question it and just thought it was a paycheck. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so anyway, so that's 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 the, what I do. And then, as far as making a living at it, I've been making a living at it since then. So, since about two thousand six, when I really started earning enough to to not do any tech consulting. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, um, and now I do you know live performances, but also I do a lot of film scoring and TV scoring, and kind of I think any 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 musician has to do this today. You need lots of baskets with lots of different eggs in them. And so, um, so I compose music for TV and film and also have my solo career. And then, yeah. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Excellent. So, so you put out the EP, how did the recorded versus live performances balance of what you were doing play out were you doing a lot of uh, live performances building up a following locally or yeah I, because I lived in this um sort of art collective space in San Francisco um I you know my roommates and I would rotate over who would host a performance on a weekend mm -hmm. and so you know I started having um kind of the things that I wanted to go to and there weren't any venues that offered what I wanted. I wanted a sort of a lounge environment mm -hmm. where people could be comfortable and where, 
you could sort of curate the evening and introduce maybe a theme. And I would always have maybe, maybe a group that I also played with, mm -hmm. or maybe some traveling artist, and they would be held together with a um, with a concept. And then I'd introduce every, you know, I'd introduce the evening. The I'd make sangria and cookies, and people would sit down on the bean bags and the chairs and the pillows on the ground, and um, and it was just creating an experience, like yeah. a way that you could. Mm -hmm. You could go, you could hear something that wasn't going to be too loud. <laughs> it was going to be just the right volume. It would be unusual, something you couldn't see anywhere else. And it would be a great social scene because having those breaks in the middle where the artists and the audience could mingle and talk and drink some sangria. And um, we didn't have permits. It was totally illegal. Mm -hmm. So um, so we had a donation model and uh, my husband made this what we called the donation sculpture, which was right at the top of the steps as you came in. Right. There was, uh, you know, this kind of dramatic metal thing with lights and an arrow on it. And it was said donations. And it was just donations for the artists, for the sangria, for the, you know. And, um, and that blew my mind because, you know, I remember the first day we collected $1,000, you know, and then another show we collected $2,000. And, and uh, eventually we had to leave the space because the, it was, uh, it was 2005, 2000, yeah, 2000, the end of 2005 and the real estate boom was sort of crushing artists in San Francisco mm -hmm. and the landlord, uh, sold, you know, evicted us to, to turn the building into, um, tech space. And, um, the building was sort of not far from where Twitter is now down, mm -hmm. down in South market. Um, and so we all left and uh, in a way it was good timing because we had reached a point where you could fit 200 people in the living room and we had too many people and right. we had to keep turning them away. And, and um, so, <laughs> so that was sort of, you know, I took it from there and left the warehouse and then started trying to book my own concerts. And again, finding that your average venue in America didn't, that you ever sort of dark smelly bar didn't mm -hmm. fit me. Mm -hmm. And so I would, my first tour, I researched on the internet warehouses and art galleries and, you know, people's backyards. And just before there was any kind of house concert network, <laughs> just mm -hmm. really doing mm -hmm. these kind of concerts across the country. Yeah. So. Did you find that it's, it sounds like people were paying sort of 10 bucks a person did that, is that yeah people would it? just throw it you know for there would always be somebody who couldn't pay because they were broke but then there would be somebody who had a tech job and could pay and so you know people would put in 10 dollar bills or 20 dollar bills and that was a really great thing for me to learn early on which was that um if you tell people that this is the thing you tell people the truth none of us are getting paid we're inviting you in here if you like it chip in it's sort of like there's this honesty up front and then you leave it up to people's good will to do the right thing. And mm -hmm. some people can't, some people won't, but enough people will that it makes it even out. And, um, and so I've kind of carried that forward into the rest of my career in a way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, we were talking beforehand about Amanda Palmer, someone that we both yeah. know that's made a mm -hmm. kind of career out of, out of, this yeah. very thing, the art of asking and people paying, um, you know, what, what they can and, and valuing mm -hmm. things um, how they can. Um, for someone like Amanda, it's, it's 
somewhat easy in the sense that she's very extrovert and, and lives mm -hmm. her life kind of more on the edge than anyone else I know. I think she, yeah. she she's totally engaged with her fans. Yeah. A lot of artists are, are more introverted, and, mm -hmm. and so that's a more, more, more difficult model, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I think I'm sort of in between where mm. I'm, um, I'm actually incredibly shy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I struggled a lot with the performance in the beginning because mm -hmm. I had such terrible stage fright. And I had to learn how to, the way to crack it was to tell the audience how I was feeling you know and because i was mm -hmm. using technology things would fail all the time you know continually crashing and if i didn't speak it would just be awkward but if i could just say oh the machine's gone on the fritz and then i'd have to tell a terrible orchestra joke while we wait for it to boot up um mm -hmm. that was i realized was the way to like make a connection for me so that i could feel not so embarrassed yep. <laughs> and then yep. for the audience too and so so i i feel like i feel fine this thing of telling i like to bring people in to tell them what it's like mm -hmm. you know this is what the world is like this is what this moment is like this is what's happening but i am very shy about talking about myself personally right <laughs> so i can i can relate i play drums and one of the reasons i took up drums was that i could sit at the back of the stage behind a whole load of metal and yes <laughs> <laughs> it kind of protected me. Yeah, yeah, see, I've got this cello. Without the cello, I wouldn't know what to do. I'd just probably clam up. Yeah, but you're there <laughs> by yourself. I mean, I'm in awe of you yeah. doing that. Yeah. Anyway, um, how did how did your the word of your music get out? You were doing presumably local stuff, and then you had the iTunes store. Were people well, finding you? Um, in the beginning, you know, there was, I think, probably the small, natural, organic, local following that people that every musician does right but um i had another philosophy which was i would say yes to crazy things mm -hmm. <laughs> and um again because of the sort of world i was in the intersection of tech and art and burning man and what have you um there were a lot of crazy things happening and um so i said yes to one crazy thing one of many but one of them happened to be to play cello after a detonation of a simulation of a nuclear bomb oh, wow. out in the desert in mm -hmm. Nevada. Mm -hmm. And it was a group of people called Simnuke. And it was the um, anniversary of the Trinity nuclear test. It was like the 60, 60th anniversary, I believe. This is mm -hmm. 2005, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so they, they had gotten all these giant diesel fans that you blow into mines. Okay. And they had put them in a circle and pumped biodiesel into the center where all the fans are and then ignited it so that it would create a mushroom okay. cloud shape. And they were going to do it at exactly whatever the time was, you know, 5.35 a.m. on July 16th, 2005, somewhere around there. I'm forgetting the exact date. Um, and because um, fire-loving pyromaniacs were worried that people might clap and cheer afterwards after what is meant to be a solemn occasion of this momentous thing that humans created, you know, that is horrifying and amazing at the same time. And um, so they asked me if I would play the cello afterwards. And I have, I felt like my early life was overshadowed by the nuclear bomb. It was like somebody mm -hmm. asked me to do something about something that I had cared about since I was, you know, 
really young and I really took on this task and I wrote a piece of music for the occasion and I performed it there and somebody from NPR was there. And so they, it was um, actually, it was somebody from NPR and also Jenny Jardin from Boing Boing was there. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. they, so they both covered it and there was a little piece that ended up being on, I think all things considered, it was a little audio spot about the event and they had a bit of my music and said something. And, um, and then after that, my um, album went to number one on iTunes classical. Wow. Wow. So, and that was amazing because then Apple made me a banner. Mm-hmm. And once I had a banner, it kept saying at number one, mm-hmm. you know, because I had a banner. So it was an example of like, once you're in, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can keep staying in. Um, and that was really the beginning for me. So that I yeah. felt like that, you know, suddenly I was earning enough that I didn't have to you know, I, I've always had a philosophy of living as cheaply as possible. If you're going to be making art, you should live cheaply so that you can take risks, right? So mm-hmm. I was already trying to, you know, live as cheaply, but then I could make a living at it. And then I just started getting more opportunities. So, mm. yeah. And then, you know, as part of that, we were talking before that, that you, um, I play with Imogen Heap, who, who's mm-hmm. the, another mutual friend. Yeah, um, I, she's, she's, she's wonderful. I, I feel like she's my soul sister in a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, she's amazing. In fact, the last time I saw you was after one of her gigs but um Mm -hmm. and she'll be on one of the episodes of of, uh, this podcast but you had then were there other people you were playing with at the time well i i did play the cello you know because i was a cellist playing with other musicians um you know i played for a while with this cello rock band called rasputina Mm -hmm. um this is before i launched my music career so i had sort of there were some people from that world that knew me which really helped when I then decided to do a national tour and, and it was advertised as Zoe, Zoe Keating from Rasputina. But I would say Imogen and then um, obviously Amanda. Um, I, I think I met Amanda through Rasputina and we struck up a friendship and then she had me record on one of her albums and I went on tour. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, some other people just started me, asked me to play. Like I, you know, I, I sat in with Tears for Fears and hmm. recorded something with Kurt Smith from that band. Um, and, uh, you know, it was that was a really fun time because suddenly I was like a cellist who could amplify her cello and sit in with a band and knew what to do, mm-hmm. you know, to play with the singer Paolo Nutini on Jay Leno. And mm-hmm. so that, was, that, was, that was a fun time. <laughs> but then, um, you know, the... the phenomenon of people buying music on iTunes morphed into yeah. the streaming economy that we have now, which is the the kind of all you can eat music for 10 bucks a month. Um, yeah. How did that impact you? Well, I knew that was always going to happen. Um, you know, it, 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 it seemed like I was lucky to hit this at this particular point in time, but it didn't, it seemed too, too good to last. And I do remember actually, I was at, at Imogen's house and I, it was early on and I, I'm trying to remember exactly when it was, but it was, um, somebody was there from iTunes <laughs> and, uh, I was talking with him and telling my experience and expressing my gratitude. And, uh, and he said, you know, this is a great story, but you shouldn't count on it forever because it's going to end. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, 
I was like, yeah. So it was sort of in my mind at the time. And I think it's been like a, I think I've watched, the thing that has bothered me is I've watched companies control the narrative around that story rather than individuals, Mm -hmm. individual artists. And that's why I initially got involved in speaking was because I felt that the companies and the platforms were were putting forward a story of what had happened in the music industry that didn't match my experience. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it, it's interesting. I mean, there's, I'm, I'm very, I'm an audiophile. I've worked in the audio industry all my life. So, you know, the iTunes model where you're buying a digital format in whatever format of the day it is, so you own an MP3, for example, didn't seem very satisfying to me because yeah. technology moves on and you own this low resolution artifact, yes. if you yeah. like. It's um, only forty four point one. Like, what are you? <laughs> I mean, my first digital camera was 240 by 480 yeah. pixels and I yeah. can't look at those pictures anymore yeah. whereas my 35 mil slides from before I can yeah. digitize in whatever format yeah. just well, the same CDs, as analog. I mean, CDs were the same way like I remember you know taking all this care and buying all this extra disk space to to record and then realizing that we had to bump it down to put mm-hmm. on a CD so yeah yeah <laughs> so you had this kind of that was the bad part. And, and part of the rental economy, if you like, of music is you can rent in, in whatever the format of the day is. You don't, you're not tied to a format. So there's some technology advantages, but there was this, and I don't even know how it happened, who set the, the, you know, like the the 10 bucks, um, Mm -hmm. because we have become used now to music being essentially valueless to most people mm-hmm. if 10 bucks a month buys you all the music or all the films on netflix for example yeah. it becomes valueless and there's this there's the the gig economy and there's there's the what's seen as the 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 great advantage of being able to do lots of things rather than just one thing so you can do a bit of this and a bit of that you can rent your room out in airbnb drive a bit of uber do some music yeah but there are two problems with that one is a lot of what that's predicated on is platforms owned by mm-hmm. companies right you know uber spotify whoever mm-hmm. and particularly in the us there's no safety net yeah. Where's the healthcare? Where's the yeah. welfare? Yeah. So, so it's kind well, of. I think any system that is where you know you have everybody's like in my case I was depending only on iTunes and that that scared me a little bit because mm-hmm. that's you know um, having already been through the experience of my tech company disappearing overnight, I was like, what if Apple disappears tomorrow? Mm-hmm. You know what do I do then? Mm-hmm. Um, and so. You know, now we have this situation as, as this has gone on for a number of years now mm-hmm. <laughs> with things becoming more and more and more consolidated so that I feel like that's actually a bad situation for yeah. artists to, mm-hmm. to have less platforms. The kind of the Wild West of the early days of the Internet is I I, I favor that because it, it leaves you know more options for the individual. There's another thread through this, though, which is that, um, you know, we've had this shift in 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 both consumption and mm-hmm. how people are paid 
in the in the creative industries and that um you know while streaming has cannibalized sales for perhaps valid reasons but it's still cannibalized them <laughs> it's still eaten mm-hmm. up sales mm-hmm. money artists are still locked for the most part in this antiquated business model where they have a relationship with the record label and they don't keep much of the proceeds mm-hmm. so that is you know looking at this this line here you've got the artists and the record labels locked in this old model that works with this old business model of selling records mm-hmm. but meanwhile everything's moved on to this mm-hmm. subscription model and that absolutely doesn't work for the artists because it's an aggregate model like you make the most money if you have the most artists you know like mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. have if you have the content of a thousand artists you're probably doing okay on spotify but that one artist might not be doing okay and yeah. so re- one reason why i've been able to hold out longer than a lot of people is that from the beginning i've owned everything myself mm-hmm. so while the earnings might be less on a streaming service i get all of them mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's that's something that I've watched with interest as we move ahead on this path, which is that um, it's become acceptable and desirable. And now we're looking at services deliberately saying, okay, not, not platforms, but you know, like the um, United music or whatever, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that, that it's important for artists to own their own content. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's really the only way forward. And that's where we are now. And that fills me with delight. <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree. I'm going to, uh, I want to come back to this and pick up that strand, but I want to to get your views on. So before recorded music, before a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. artists made all of their money um, on on live concerts, on playing live and selling sheet music. Or, or patronage if they were lucky. Or patronage, yes. Yeah. Um, and then we moved into maybe the 70s and 80s being the golden time of where musicians made their money on recorded um, yeah. output and that the live performances were kind of adverts for the for the yeah. records. Mm-hmm. And now we're moving back to a stage where recorded music is kind of devalued, mm-hmm. but live becomes more the, uh, the recorded music becomes yeah. the advert for the, for the live gigs. And with my teenage daughter now, she's going to concerts where the, the ticket prices are, as much as 200 bucks for a ticket. Yeah, um, yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I don't think, I think that that is, you know, there's always a danger in talking about music as a monolithic thing when there's so yes. many different subcultures. And I, yeah. so I think that for, you know, for the, the wedge of popular music, I do think that's true. <laughs> mm. I think that there are other kinds of music on the periphery that are smaller that um, the recording and the listening experience are still very important. And it's the trick has been trying to figure out how to earn enough money from that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I, I agree. And and also, there are only a few artists that can charge two hundred dollars yeah. for a ticket. I mean, yeah, it's it's for, it's all very well for yeah world known names, but for everyone under that, yeah. And I I've been wary to do that. Like, I my booking agent would love it if I would do tiered events. You know, I, I did try one tour to do that where I had, okay, I'm going to have, um, t- I'm going to have a city. I'm going to have two shows. One is going to be an expensive ticket. It's going to be a sort of a luxury experience. And the other one's going to be, you know, the college level pricing. And, um, 
there were some benefits to it, but I felt ultimately like I didn't like recreating in my audience what is going on in society yeah. <laughs> with the stratification. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't like exploiting income inequality that way. And I really care a lot about my music being universal and people mm -hmm. being able to get to it and not, not being, you know, I think because I felt so rejected from the world of classical to begin with mm -hmm. um, and modern music and what have you, I felt like I want to be accessible. I don't want to be intellectual about it. I want you to, if you, if you just like the music, just be able to come, it costs $25, you know? So, um, so, you know, I, I leave a lot of money on the table that way because I want the concert, I want the concerts to be as cheap as possible. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I totally hear you. I grew up in, in Europe where there's much more funding for the arts and as part yeah. of that, yeah. it was always the ability when I was growing up and a student, I could go mm -hmm. to the national theater and queue for on the day yes. tickets yes. or go to the Vienna um, Opera and pay yeah. a euro mm -hmm. for a standing place yep. at the back. And... I, I really believe in that. And, you know, it's mm -hmm. like the, um, I, you know, I, I grew up with uh, in dire financial circumstances and things like going to concerts were off limits. Like, you know, I didn't, I wasn't able to go to a concert until I got my own job when I was a senior in high school and I could afford to buy a ticket to something. Yep. Yeah. And um, I, I don't want to inflict that on my audience. So <laughs> I don't know. Mm -hmm. it, it's kind of, um, I'd like to find other ways to extract money from my wealthy listeners. <laughs> sure, sure. So that's maybe a good segue into into the passion economy and things like mm -hmm. Patreons and, and the yeah. reemergence of the patronage culture. Mm -hmm. What do you think of all of that? Oh, and then NFTs, which have just you know, oh, yes. blew up this year. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, I think, um, you know, in some ways the, the pandemic really showed the importance of patronage for artists mm -hmm. because, you know, for most of them, their main source of income was just eliminated <laughs> mm -hmm. overnight. Um, and I think some artists do it really well and some artists don't. Um, I, I do not do the patronage model myself because I'm personally uncomfortable with it although i support mm -hmm. other people using it and because it mm -hmm. works for them i think the way that i create and i try to create in a vacuum if, maybe it's my english canadian upbringing i don't know but if i know that people are waiting or expecting for something from me i'll be paralyzed <laughs> mm -hmm. sure. so so it's important for me to feel that i don't have any obligations to someone directly to make music unless they're hiring me for a film that's different um mm -hmm. So I, I've decided that it's creatively dangerous for me to have a relationship with my art and my fans that way. But I, I love that other people can do it. I do see that some of the people who are supporting creative people through these platforms are getting a little burned out and a little drained themselves, both financially and attention-wise. And in fact, I think it's telling that I support many people, you know, um, through various platforms, including Patreon. And I get their emails and I, I'm sorry to say, I rarely read some of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. I'll still send the money, but I'm not yep. listening. And it's because I'm feeling overwhelmed with all the content that's coming in. It's like, it's too much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree. I likewise am uh, a patron of a number of people and, and have that same issue, as mm -hmm. well as another issue, which is 
kind of death by a thousand cuts in a way. You you end up paying a little bit to a number of artists, and mm -hmm. you end up unconsciously with a with quite a large monthly bill. Yeah, and, yeah, and then you don't want to cancel any of them because you don't want them to know. You know, it's just like yeah, like, yeah. You know. um, <laughs> and that kind of yeah, you'd really hurt their feelings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you don't, but yeah. you're stuck, and and yeah. then you can't do any more. And then there's this gulf between the um, music platforms, which is like the casual browsing where you've got this kind of millions, mm -hmm. tens of millions of tracks, and then the Patreon bit. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be like a chasm in between. Very yeah. much so, yeah. How do you bring someone from from someone you hear on Spotify to a true believer that's prepared to pay, you know, yeah a month or something yeah do you have any thought that seems to be the difficult area kind of that yeah that gray between the black and the white the casual yeah. listener and the, the true I, believer I, i've done a fair amount of listening on spotify this last year and um i have actually not discovered anything new i'm listening to things that i already know about mm -hmm. um where i'm discovering things and finding things and becoming a fan is through old-fashioned canadian radio <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're both both canadian radio and um bbc as bbc3 has you know that there's that lovely program night shift yep night shift, um, yeah. oh, love that show oh. and uh i religiously tune in to um you know these this is cbc too has a similar kind of program i tune into those and you know once they hit a certain hour of night <laughs> mm -hmm. i'll find things that i wouldn't find otherwise um and uh, i think it's kind of I don't know if that's me being Generation X that I'm being contrary that I don't I don't like being algorithmed to, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but there's that's like I'm relying on someone else's curation, so it's still curation, which is what we were doing back in our warehouse days. We were curating an evening for mm -hmm. people that then the result of that experience of that evening would make them fans of the of the evening. So, long story to get back to your question, that's where I think. The, the, that connection happens is you have a thing that is well curated mm -hmm. and an experience that brings the people together to experience that creation and create a connection with other people experiencing something. Mm -hmm. So it's not just you individually, like the mechanism of people feeling spoken to or feeling connected and together. That's the way I think that you make a lifelong fan. And Anecdotally, I hear all the ways that people became like I have fans who, you know, they've been with me now since the beginning and they write and I've heard their stories during the pandemic and and uh, there's nearly always some experience of like somebody took them to a concert mm -hmm. during a particular moment in their life and something that touched them or there was something. So it's still an experience that doesn't have to be in person. Like sometimes people have this experience where they're, they're on their own when it's happening and they're, but they're going through something and the music is there when they're going through that. Does that make mm. sense? So mm. I think figuring out how to make those things happen is the, is the way forward for artists. Yeah, I think that particularly makes sense with your music because there's, mm. there's this incredible depth to it that I think mm. can, can connect with people in, 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 in a really profound way. It certainly has for me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there, there's two things there. There's the, the live performance aspect, you know, meeting other people that like the same sort of thing as, as mm -hmm. you do. And I experienced that, um, 
on the South Bank in England, where I used to go and see people like uh, Gavin Bryars and mm-hmm. um, Arvo Part and mm-hmm. you know, Michael Nyman and people and kind of quirky music that only a few people listen to and you met yeah. all the other people that listen yeah. to that sort of music. But it could be in a living room too. I mean, yeah. it could be like yeah. listening to a recording in a living room with other people, you know, that, that, that yep. kind of thing. it doesn't have to be a concert. I wonder if there's a digital way of doing what you did in your warehouse. So mm-hmm. like, I, I believe that the algorithms in a lot of these platforms are really not very adventurous. So it doesn't mm-hmm. surprise me you're not learning new stuff from Spotify or Tidal yeah. or anyone like that. Yeah. Um, I, I'd uh, call out a French radio station, FIP, for being wonderful at, mm. at you know that. I mm-hmm. highly recommend you listen to FIP. Okay, I will. Um, yeah. But is there a way of artists showcasing artists like them and, and yeah. sort of almost doing a a digital curation the same way sure. you did in your warehouse. I mean, some of my, f- the, the, my favorite music is music that I found because Imogen was listening to it or, mm-hmm. you know, some other artists recommended it. And, you know, artists are, what artists listen to always really interests me. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so there, but there's, um, I really like being surprised and I love it when, you know, that feeling of listening to the radio and somebody has thought about their hour program that they're going to play and they've thought about what's going to come next and what song is going to come after the other one. And, you know, they've really thought about that. Mm-hmm. And that that's, can be really a moving experience if it hits you at the right time. So there's kind of, yeah, curation and then a way to act on that curation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really conscious of time because I, I know, know you have a time commitment I and I feel yeah. I could talk to you for, for hours yeah. and hours. And I would we love just to. got started on the cool stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What about, you know, how the pandemic's affected you and how you feel um, will come out of this in terms of live events and and, and also... Yeah, recording? I mean, for, for me, it was very obviously shocking to have the live concerts cancelled. But um, again, I had already curtailed a lot of my live performance anyway because, you know, since my husband passed away, I am now an only parent. So Mm -hmm. that has made touring already difficult for me. And I had already diversified my income before the pandemic. So I was well positioned more than other artists to survive, I think. But um, I think the thing that is concerning me moving forward for the entire live performance industry is a lot of venues have closed. Venues are struggling. In the United States, it was already difficult in some markets to get a concert because of a certain size venue are getting less and less and less. It's Mm. like, it's like society as a whole, we have a lot of little dive bars and we have a lot of big venues and there's not a lot in the middle. (laughs) And um, those middle sized venues are what I like best. Like I can play for, you know, I had five concerts for 750 people in a row, like in San Francisco, like that's, that's the size. I don't want to go bigger than 750. Mm-hmm. And so I did five nights. <laughs> right. Like that's the size I can do, but I won't do a big mm-hmm. venue. And mm-hmm. so I'll deliberately go to those smaller venues. And those are the ones that really had a hard time making it through. Yeah. And, and uh, I know just from trying to book my rescheduled tour, which now we're looking at summer 2022 oh, because wow. of yeah. the sheer volume of artists Ah. who are booking venues. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's they're going to have a period of time where it's going to be pretty hard to get a show. And maybe the 
positive side of that is that maybe I'll have to go back to booking warehouse concerts mm-hmm. and, 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 and having more control over the experience, which I lost as I became more successful. Because as mm-hmm. I became more successful, I rely on the venues to provide the experience. Whereas mm-hmm. I used to micromanage every aspect of it. <laughs> yep. yep. So. <laughs> have you done a um, live streaming during the pandemic? I did one. And personally, I found it very technically difficult because of mm-hmm. because I'm playing the cello with a computer and eight tracks. And I normally have a mixing engineer who makes the levels yep. perfect. And I couldn't do that. Right. And then also managing the video and the thing. And um, so there was that. And then also... I perform so that I can connect with the audience yeah. and I couldn't yeah. do that. And I felt, you know what? I don't need the money right now because I have this film scoring. I, I, I mm-hmm. pivoted to working, composing for film yep. during this, during this time, I'm going to leave this space to all the artists who really need it. <laughs> so I just, I just stepped back. <laughs> uh, well, um, I would love to talk to you about so much more. I mean, you mentioned NFTs, and I'd love to talk to you. About <laughs> yeah. Them, but, but, maybe, that's, um, maybe I can talk to you next week about that. <laughs> yeah. But I know you have a time constraint. Yeah. So is there anything, one last thing that you'd like to say is that we haven't covered? Oh, gosh. I think the one thing I would say is that whenever something's happening in this music industry, just look at who's behind it. Like, Mm-hmm. I wish people would not believe every single story they read and look at who had the incentive to write that or who is the incentive to say it. Like just using that kind of liberal arts education <laughs> that mm-hmm. I have to to look at the source of things and why are things happening the way they are. It's, it's such a much bigger picture than I see presented in the press. And yeah. looking at that bigger picture, I think allows you to see other solutions than, than what we have in front of us. So that's all. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think we could do that in all areas of life, yeah, particularly yeah. music. Start we're... with music and then do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So again, I highly, highly, highly recommend that people listen to your music. Zoe Keating, on whatever platform, go and find it. How do people get in contact with you? What's the best way? Uh, email, zoekeating.com is really good. I, I, I check my email. Uh, I, I might always not always reply. <laughs> um, but <laughs> And then Twitter, Zoe Cello. Yeah. Yeah. Twitter might be a bit more reliable these days just because I'm sure like you, I get a tsunami of email every day. And um, if I yeah. don't answer it immediately, it's gone in my slipstream forever. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank but anyway, you. thank you for talking to me. This, uh, oh, thank you so much for your time. I wish we could talk longer. But And thank you for everyone listening. Please, as usual, tell us what you think in the podcast platform of choice. Rate us. Give us suggestions about um, any other people you'd like to to hear us talk to. And uh, come back and listen to some other episodes. Thanks again. Bye.